We wish to call your attention for a little while tonight, beloved, to the word of God as it is found in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 14, in the first three verses. Let me read once more. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with your word and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously, so will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not ride upon horses, neither will we say any more to the work of our hands, Ye are our God, for in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. It might be well, beloved, for a moment or two to call your attention <coughs> to not only this particular prophet, but also to the prophecy that Hosea was called to utter in order that you may be able to see the proper setting in which the words of our text are found. This First of all, I call your attention to this prophet, whose name is Hosea. You don't know very much about him, nor does the prophecy that he uttered give us any special information. He is simply called Hosea, the son of the Airy, who he was, I don't know. His name means, and this is rather significant in the light of the spiritual condition of the people to whom he was called to prophesy, his name means salvation, salvator, deliverer, help. So that rather significantly, I think, the Lord called one who was given in his name to symbolize the salvation which God uh, declares unto his people. Hosea prophesied <coughs> to the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of the ten tribes. If you are acquainted at all with the history, you will know that uh, after the uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, came to the throne, the kingdom divided. There were ten tribes that went along with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin by introducing the worship of the golden calf. The other tribes, the kingdom of Judah, remained faithful to the house of David and for a time served God there in the temple. Later, of course, they also apostatized and went into captivity from whence they returned after 70 years. And Hosea evidently prophesied in the middle of the 250 years of the existence of these 
ten tribes or the kingdom of Israel. Most likely began to prophesy in the days when Jehu became king. And as you probably know, all of the kings who ruled over the kingdom of Israel were very wicked. And the last seven kings, <clears throat> during which time undoubtedly Hosea prophesied, that is from Jeroboam the second unto Hoshea, until Assyria came and took the ten tribes away captive from whence they never returned. All this time there was an apostasy, a departure, which of course began already with the separation in the days of Rehoboam. The Lord never allowed the ten tribes after that separation to prosper, and as is generally the case, when sin is committed and not repented of, it only develops and increases. And that was precisely the uh, condition of the ten tribes, and especially uh, this apostasy reaches its height uh, in the period in which Hosea is called to prophesy. And it's rather striking. You don't get that only from this prophecy, but also from the uh, sacred history uh, concerning the time of the king, which you may read in the book of Kings. How that murder and adultery and robbery and cursing in one word utter worldliness was characteristic of the age in which Hosea was called to prophesy if I may digress for a moment I would think that you may find uh, repetition of the situation that Hosea found in our own time, where there is evidence of apostasy on every hand, when iniquity abounds. Now you say, well, it always has. Well, that's true, but you know, as I suggested a moment ago, it lies in the very nature of the judgment of God who always circumvents the sinner. And that iniquity develops. And this is true historically too. I think you could show that in many instances. Just to mention one or two. Take the time, of course, before the flood. There comes a time when God says, your cup of iniquity is full, and I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. And he did. That same thing was true in connection with the history of Sodom. There comes a day when God says, I cannot stand it any longer. I'm going to wipe out these evil places from the face of the earth. And he did. 
And as you know, if you are a Bible student, this is precisely what is going to happen in the days that are still ahead. And sometimes, I think, not far ahead. Can you think of any time in the history of the world when iniquity was so terrifically iniquitous as it is today? When there is no longer any respect for the order of God, not only the order of his commandments, but also even the order of nature, of creation. When it seems as though they turned the whole world upside down, simply to douse into a nickel. When sin isn't even looked upon anymore, with horror. When they talk about sin openly. I remember a time when when uh, adultery was, uh, was a horrible thing. I tell you, if anybody was caught in the sin of adultery in the church and they made confession of that sin, that was that was that was terrific. We all tied up and took notice, I tell you. It didn't happen anymore. Very little. I'm talking about what happens in the church, in the church of Christ. Talk about robbery. You can take that as awful. If gangsters go out and rob a place, you know, and in the process kill somebody, policemen maybe, bystanders, you think that's awful. Now we almost trace them if they can get away for a little bit. We glorify. This is what's happening. What's happening in our day. And it is happening also, and I'm afraid sometimes also among us, that we don't know any longer that sin is exceeding sinful. A few weeks ago I called your attention to it, that this was drawn to my attention. Also amongst our covenant youth. There is no real spiritual sensitivity. That's alarming. That means that also as far as our covenant views are concerned, they appear to go along with the spirit of the age. This is what's happened. And if I may tell you so, it is for that reason particularly that I wanted to call your attention to this passage of scripture tonight. But let's it be understood that this was the time in which Hosea was called to prophesy. And if you read the first part of this prophecy, you will notice that the Lord called him to symbolize this adulterous nation. He had to take to himself a wife of Fordham. And out of that relationship came forth children. Read that in chapter 1 of this prophecy. And we just call your attention to it a moment. And she conceived, and the Lord said unto him, Call him. No, and she, and so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Biblia, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel. 
For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it came to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again, and bare daughter. God said unto him, You call her name Lorukamah. For I will have no more, I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. That's awful. I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will, I will take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, or by horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lorukamah, she conceived in their son. And then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people. That's horrible. Ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Just think of it. And he had to symbolize that uh, by this uh, Mary. And show unto his people their adulterous nation, their adulterous nature. And then he proclaims to them that in the midst of all of their sin and their sinful condition, God nevertheless is merciful, gracious calls his people to repentance, to conversion. And because of his great mercy, his unchangeable love, which he has to the remnant, according to the election of grace. With these thoughts in mind, I'd, I'd like to consider with you the words of our text under the theme, Israel calls to conversion. And in that connection, I call your attention, first of all, to an urgent calling. A calling to conversion. In the second place, to the unique way, that is, the unique way in which this conversion takes place. And in the third place, to the sufficient ground. That is, why Israel may, when they return from their sin, they convert, may experience the blessing and the favor of God. First of all, <clears throat> you will notice that our text here speaks of Israel. Oh, Israel. And Israel, not only here in this prophecy, but I think we may say that throughout Scripture, is always viewed organically. That means that the heart and the kernel 
so to speak, of that which truly constitutes the Israel of God is the election of grace. That's always the heart of Israel. But that heart, that election of grace, from an organic point of view, it comes to fruition, comes to manifestation in a reprobate shell. And undoubtedly, that is the viewpoint that must also be taken here when the Lord, through the prophet, addresses those of our text as Israel. He is speaking, first of all, in a general way, to the organism. There isn't anybody that won't hear his voice that won't hear his protestations against their sin, his denouncement of their horrible walk and their sinful condition, no one, I say, will be able not to hear what he says. Even the reprobate must hear it, for the word of God, you understand, must be as it was also here, a savor of death unto death, a hardening word that only causes them to go on and on and on in their sin to their destruction. But the heart of that word and the very idea of that word and of the address of that word is to Israel. That is, as you read in chapter 12 of this prophecy, that people who through weeping and supplication win the favor of Jehovah. It's rather striking, I think. I don't have the time tonight to enter into all of the details of this prophecy that take us a little too far astray from my text. But in chapter 12, very beautifully, the prophet uh, speaks there of Jacob and Esau, and particularly of Jacob, who, when he wrestled with Jehovah, remember at Sinaiah, he said, I will not let thee go unless thou bless me. And he wrestled with the angel of Jehovah until the breaking of the dawn. And Jehovah blessed him and called his name Israel. Prince of God. Conquer. Conquer, not with the power of might, but with weeping and supplication, with penitence, with sorrow for one's sin and for one's departure from the fear and from the law of Jehovah. This is that Israel who is addressed here particularly in the words of our text. Israel that is 
false. Notice how the text expresses this. Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And I think that word iniquity there is a very good word, very good translation of the idea of sin, as it is undoubtedly set forth here in the text. You have fallen by your sin, which uh, is iniquity. And that idea, the root idea of that word is crookedness. So that evidently in the background of this word you have this. That which is straight, of course, is the law of God. The will of God for his people. You walk that straight line and you come out okay. But when you sin, you make that way crooked. You pervert it. You ignore it. That's the idea here too. You are fallen by your iniquity. You have fallen into that sin in which you do not nor are able anymore to see and to understand and to delight in that which is straight and upright. That pretty well describes the spiritual condition of Israel in the day in which this word of our text is addressed to that Israel. They walk in crooked ways. Which they had made crooked. Through their evil desire and their evil work. You fall by thine iniquity. <clears throat> to that people that is in such a plight God through the prophet called Jehovah thy God speaking I need not spend any time tonight in telling you the significance of this name of God except to say that it is that name whereby he especially attaches himself to his people. Covenant made, which is over his covenant people. I am Jehovah thy God. There isn't any other God beside me. I am the unchangeable one who has established a friendship relation with you, which I will not change. You may deny it. You may neglect it. You may depart from me, and you did. But I never do. That's what's so wonderful, you know, if I may say this, beloved, at this point. That's what's so wonderful about God. You know, if we had a God that would change, say today he would be very delightful and pleasing to us, but tomorrow he would be very angry and hateful. Or 
today he would give it to you graces, and tomorrow he would uh, reveal the dispensations of his wrath. If God were God who were changeable, you would understand right on the very surface of it, you couldn't trust him. You couldn't believe his word. He might not even mean what he said. But that isn't the case. God is Jehovah. Jehovah is thy God. Remembering eternally the unchangeable God. The God of the everlasting covenant who has in mind to realize a people whom he will never forsake. No matter how far they fall, how deep they have fallen into their sin and iniquity. He can never change. His love can never be dissipated. He can never lose it. He can never change in his attitude toward that. I will have more to say about that in the sequence, especially in the conclusion of my sermon tonight. But that's the idea. Jehovah. Jehovah calls. And he calls to that Israel that is fallen in her iniquity to return, that is, to turn. And that means to convert. And in my theme, the calling to conversion. Turn about. The idea is, of course, that Jehovah says to the people, the way in which you are walking, which is the way of crookedness, is not good. You must convert. You must turn and leave that way. You must return unto me. Unto the straight path. Return. Convert. And always, beloved, in Scripture, that's true in the New Testament as well, where you have that word conversion, you have, first of all, a change of mind and of heart. That is not something which is affected by us. That is, first of all, rooted in the sovereign mercy and grace of God, who makes the dead sinner alive. Gives unto him, as I said, suggested this morning, a new mind and a new will and new power to walk in his law and be to be pleasing in his sight. That's the idea of It's a change, first of all, of mind and heart. And that means, too, also a change in your affection. Where once, perhaps, you found delight in the things of sin, now they become a matter of your hatred. And this is precisely the point that I want to raise tonight, and I'm speaking especially to our young people, if you will allow me to tonight. When sin becomes exceeding sinful, you know, I wonder about that. We we talk about sin. We talk about all the different aspects of sin. 
We talk about righteousness. We talk about forgiveness. We talk about justification and all of these nice, beautiful scriptural concepts. Do we really understand what they mean? I mean, not simply intellectually, but from a spiritual, spiritual, experiential point of view. What does it mean when one converts? It means, beloved, that he began to see sin as God sees it. And I tell you, when you talk that, when you say that, then a shiver goes down my spine. And it should yours. Then sin becomes something that is truly hateful. Not something to be cuddled and nestled in your bosom, but a dangerous, deadly viper which you will cast from you. The sinner, of course, who is not converted, who goes on in his sin, he plays with the viper. Plays with it. He likes it. He wants more of it. Isn't that awesome? That's the nature of sin. Conversion Make you to stop and to turn it on and to run away. Not forward, but away from shit. This is what it means. It means that you suddenly take an aversion to it. You hate it. And you hate it because God hates it. Did you understand that? Let me just illustrate that for a moment. In our day and age, of course, we talk so much about sex till it almost sticks out of your ears. And I get so sick of it. Sex, sex, sex. Every newspaper you read, every magazine you read, every television program you see is sex. All sex Sex, sex. And by and by, you know, you begin to think that's something wonderful. Now, I'm not saying anything about sex that it isn't wonderful. I think God created it. But he created it within bounds. It's not something that you can just throw around like a football, you see. But he put it in bounds. And so in the age of young people, there is a period in which these urges toward sexuality come up in them. That's not sinful in itself. That's natural. That's the way God made us. But in our day and age, you know, this becomes such a thing that they gotta, they, they advise teaching it to little children. You've got to uh, portray the whole business. You've got to draw it out in pictures. The relationship between a man and a wife. 
And you've got to show them from A to Z all about that until after a while, because of their corrupt natures as they are conceived and born in, they think that's something to be played with, and you can do with that as you please. And so you have all kinds of promiscuity. You have no lines anymore, no boundaries for the sin. And in fact, it is true that men with men are doing that which is unseemly, and what you have is the judgment of God that has come upon our generation, as Paul speaks of it in Romans 1. There is no longer any sense of proper judgment in respect to this particular thing. Now, what happens when conversion comes? Does that mean that you lose all uh, urge for sex? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. You don't become eunuch after your conversion. You don't throw away your wife after conversion. But it is put in its proper place. It is put in the place that God has highly honored. And you don't profane and corrupt or seek the corruption of that illicit relationship. You understand? It becomes a thing which you despise, not only in yourself, but also in others. And why do you despise it? Because God despises it. Enlightened mind, in renewed will, and renewed power to walk in the fear and according to the law of God once more. Where formerly our walk was in the direction of sin and evil and corruption and death. God called. Return. Convert. And I hasten to add that I understand that calling here is an efficacious calling. God's word is always efficacious. It never returns to him void. It always accomplishes that unto which he sends it. And in this case, it's very evident, as I suggested earlier, directed to God's people, to his elect nucleus, the remnant, according to grace. Convert! from your evil way. Walk in the new way, in the new path, which I have prescribed for you in my loving kindness. That's the idea of the calling that is set forth here in our text. And I might add hastily to that, when God calls Israel, they call. There can be no question about that. His real Israel will hear and understand and obey. But how will they come? 
In what way do they come? And this is what's so beautiful about this text tonight, beloved. God not only says, I call you to return from your evil way, but I'm going to tell you how you have to do that too. How you must come to me. This is what I expect of you when you come to me, when you turn from your evil way. You will come to me with words. And that means, if I understand it correctly, confession. Confession. You know what confession is? Confession is literally to say the same thing that God says. And that's true about sin too. So that you say about sin what God says about sin. That's confession. You say about forgiveness, about righteousness, about eternal life, what God says about these things. That's confession. Take with your word. And not only does the word of God here say to them, come to me with your mouth open, but he even puts in that mouth the words that they are to speak. Notice what he says to you. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously. Isn't that something? Take away all our iniquity and receive us graciously. I take that to mean receive the good which thou hast implanted into our hearts in conversion. As a negative and a positive thought here, the child of God in his confession declares without any equivocation his hatred of his sin. And this is something that I'd like to impress upon you very strongly tonight. The shame. You can't talk about that nonchalantly. You can't be indifferent about that. Not if you see it properly. It's a horrible thing. You know what that sin of yours and mine did? It made God take his only begotten son and send him into the world to come under the burden of that sin and to go to that horrible cross of Calvary and to die there, and not simply at the hands of Herod or Pontius Pilate and all the rest, but in the hands of God. God there poured upon his sacred head all the vials of his wrath over against our sin, and every drop of blood that was pressed out of that precious body of our Savior, beloved, was a drop of atonement. Can you understand that? What your sins did to your Savior? Shouldn't you hate it as God hates it? Take away all our sins 
It is an abomination unto us also, O God. We hate it. Because we love that now which is good. And that good is of thee. And thou wilt surely receive that. That's blessed in thy sight. Not simply receive it graciously. So that God is very gracious when he receives us. All that's true, of course, of itself. But that's not the idea. The idea is that there is some good in these people, these sinners that are converted. And that is the grace of God that is in them. That is always precious unto him. He loves God. And that he receives. That he acknowledges. That he also delights in. That's acceptable to him. In one word, there isn't anything that is acceptable unto God except his own work of grace. You understand that? There isn't anything that you can give to God. You don't have anything. I don't either. There is nothing that you can lay at his disposal that will in any way ameliorate or ease his wrath over against us and atone for our sin. There isn't anything. We don't have anything. That's our hopeless condition. That was the condition here too. The only thing that we have is given to us of grace. And that God receives. That's the prayer. That's the utterance. That's the confession. Which the child of God is taught here to say. But that is not. Notice. In close connection with that. That the prophet also tells them. So will we render the cares of our lips. That's what they say too. We will render the cares of our lips. Now of course that's figurative language. The figure of course is the calf that was offered on the sacrifice for atonement. And as I suggested just a moment ago, we don't have such a calf to offer that can satisfy for our sin. The only calf that we have now is the calves of our lips. That's the offering and the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto God for his redemption, for his deliverance from all our sins. Quite in harmony, you understand, with the idea of the Heidelberg Catechism. God delivers us from our sin and misery in order that we may live a life of gratitude unto him for such redemption. So will we render the cares of our lips. And then notice, that isn't all. There is also a promise here of obedience. A resolve. A holy resolve. Asher shall not save us. That's what these Israelites did, you know. They put their confidence in Asher, that is, Assyria. They said when the enemies came, and God always sent enemies to them because they were walking in sin, he sent nations to fight against them. And when they came, they, they didn't go to God for help. They ignored God. So they went to Assyria. They said, please send us an army. Will you to defend us and deliver us from our oppression? 
then they went to Egypt. And there they also got horses. Israel might never have horses, you understand. A horse is a vain thing to put confidence in. So God had instructed that people, don't get horses. But they did. They went to Egypt and they got the very back. That would take them into battle. The symbol of strength and power. Notice what they say. We will not ride upon horses. We have learned to put our trust and our confidence no longer in an arm of flesh. Neither will we say any more to the work of our hands. Ye are our God, our idols. We will burn up. We will not serve the idols anymore. Take with your word. Take them. Oh, I tell you, beloved, the redeemed Christian is never tongue-tied. He can't be. He's got something to say, I tell you. First of all, he has to say this. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me pure and righteous in my sight. Very simple. And we hate sin. We desire to serve him. We will no longer put our trust in an arm of flesh, but in thee, Jehovah, who are truly the God of our salvation. We have words. And the Lord expects you to say something too. He expects you to say precisely this. You ever say those words? You young people. Is there a time when you really get down on your knees before God and say, Oh God, forgive my sin. They are many and great. And I love thee. And I desire to serve thee. You don't go around, you know, making excuses and say, Well, that old man of sin which is with me, he does all that devilry. It's just too bad, but that old man of sin, he gets the control of me, and so I just can't help what I do, and and what of it? There comes a time, of course, when we are going to be delivered from that old man of sin. Well, let's, let's abide our time. We'll be delivered. And so we go on in our sin. Oh, no, not the child of God. The child of God doesn't do that. He doesn't talk that way. He can't. When God changes him, he turns. And when he turns, he speaks. He speaks from the heart. Take away all our iniquity from us. And make us to be good in thy sight. Grant our Father, our God, that we may put all of our confidence 
in thee alone. That's my text. Oh, this is just as apropos today as it was in the days that Hosea was called to utter in the land of Israel. And on what grounds is this conversion and this confession fixed? Listen. For in thee the fatherless findeth mercy. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. We don't turn to God for naught. With me, the fatherless findeth mercy. And that fatherless there is the spiritual author who has no longer any attachment to all the bone in his spirit. And that becomes a tremendous faith. You ever look at your sin all alone? I mean that. You ever look at yourself all alone? You know, a sinner is all alone. He's an orphan. That's awful, isn't it? It's awful nice to have father and mother. Somebody who will care for us. Who's interested in us. But an orphan doesn't have that. He has no one. He's all alone. And that's the sinner, too. He's all alone. God isn't with him. His fellow man rises up against him. They can't help him. The sinner is really foolish, you know. He may put his trust in Asher and look to the Egypt for horses. But it's a vain thing. And he finds that out too. He finds that out. Sin never pays. It doesn't pay to be a sinner. Oh, no. He loses everything. That's the horribleness of it. And the foolishness of it. You don't gain anything. When a man sees another woman and he goes after her and leaves his own, he doesn't gain anything. He loses everything. He even loses his wife. He loses his name. He loses his place in the community, in the church. Everything. He loses everything. When a man drinks himself to be a sot, he doesn't gain anything by that. He loses everything. He loses his name and his money and his family. He loses his place in society. He has nothing. And they know too. That's why you find them lying in the gutter on Madison Avenue in Chicago in the summertime. Stinking rotten mess. That was the prodigal too. He didn't have anything. We ended up in a big sty eating what the pigs ate. That's always the way of the sinner. Don't you see? It's a horrible thing. He's an orphan. He's an orphan. And it is just precisely when God makes us to see that we are orphans, that then we are prepared to see and to taste and to experience his mercy. And that's what's so wonderful about our God, the God of our salvation. 
for with thee the orphan findeth mercy. Mercy to forgive our sins. Mercy to deliver us out of the bondage of sin and death. Mercy to bring us into that blessing which he has prepared and which he did unto the repentant sinner. That mercy. Mercy is that grace of God according to which he desires to deliver out of the deepest possible misery and to make our taker of the highest possible blessedness. That is mercy. And that operation of his grace, the converted sinner experiences, takes, for with thee, the orphan, findeth mercy. And the reason for that is, Jehovah, your God, doesn't change. He was that way from the very beginning, from everlasting. His mercy was upon you. His love and his grace was meant for you and for no one else. You understand? Turn, O Israel, unto the Jehovah thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to Jehovah and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive the good. So will we render the calves of our lips and beloved unto all eternity they will be tied enough. We thank you for that deliverance and for that salvation and for that mercy. Amen. Our Father, that thou sanctify to our hearts thy word and give us to understand it in all of its implications, cause thy spirit to graciously apply it unto our hearts so that the proof may be that we truly repent and turn unto thee and to dwell near unto thee that is eternal life. Amen.